Then when I put on those glasses and I looked around, the store looked different. Like everything looked different. I didn't see it before. And now that I had these glasses, I could see it. It's such a good illustration for what it means to have a biblical worldview. Welcome to the second episode of the Berean Beats podcast. My name is Bernie Wright, and on the Berean Beats podcast, we talk about learning to discern. This is a Christian discipleship podcast, and we'll be talking about different topics related to what's going on in our world today and how we view that with a biblical worldview. Before we really get started, um, we need to make sure that we're defining things well, that we're all on the same page. So we're taking these first couple of episodes to talk about definitions, what things like worldview mean, what biblical worldview means, and why we even care about any of that. So in the very first episode, we talked about who the Bereans were, uh, why they were important, They're mentioned in Acts chapter 17, and it was said of the Bereans that they were of more noble character than the Jews in Thessalonica because they went back to the scripture to see if everything that Paul and his friends were teaching were true. And that's a role model for how we need to be. Anything that we hear or read about or any ideas that are presented to us, it's so critical that we bring that through uh, uh, the lens of the Bible. And so this episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about worldview and what that means and what it means to bring things through the lens of scripture. I am 34 years old and I first got my my first pair of eyeglasses uh, when I was like in eighth grade. It had to have been eighth grade. Uh, And I remember before I got my eyeglasses, I didn't even know that I needed them. I remember being in in school, looking at the board, and sometimes I could figure out what was on the board and what the teacher was writing, and sometimes I couldn't. And I just, you know, thought to myself, well, maybe I'm sitting too far away. Maybe this teacher is writing too small, and that's why I can't figure out, you know, what they're writing. But my grades hurt from it, and uh, it was a problem. Uh, eventually, I think someone from the school told my grandmother or my mom, hey, um, you guys need to go take him to get his eyes checked and see if he needs some glasses so that he can see. And so I remember going into the mall um, near where I grew up, and I'll never forget the lens crafters where we went was right next door to the KB Toy Store. <laughs> and I love the KB Toy Store. I, I really liked going in there. Back then, I was really into Nintendo 64 games and uh, and Star Wars. The prequels were brand new, so I remember I bought a double-bladed lightsaber there once, and uh, it had a little camera flash in it. So anytime you hit um, the lightsaber stick, it was like an old-style camera flashed. It was really cool. But I remember going in to the lens crafters, and the optometrist was next door, and 
you know, when, whenever you take that test, they show you all these different charts and pictures and you have to look at them and see what you can read and tell them what you can read. But one of the hardest things that they do is they'll show you two different images and then they'll ask you, you know, which one looks clear and they'll say one or two or first or second or A or B and you have to decide which image is clearer based on what you're seeing. So um, I went through all that. Some of them were hard calls, right? But one of the things that it did was that it humbled me and showed me, you know what? You really do need glasses. Um, you really can't see without that. And I can see things up close, but I couldn't read things far away. So uh, we got done with the test. You know, they fitted me for frames. We went home and they said, hey, we'll call you when they're ready. And so I remember at some point going back in to the lens crafters and seeing everything. You know, they have all the tables out and they have all the frames on the left and the right and the consultants and stuff. But then when I put on those glasses and I looked around, the store looked different. Like everything looked different. I could see colors better. I could, like shapes were defined. There are actually lines on things instead of blurs. And I remember there was a sign in the store that I didn't notice before. And it said something like, thank you for coming, have a nice day, or welcome to Lens Crafters or something like that. But I didn't see it before. And now that I had these glasses, I could see it. And it, it, it's such a good illustration for what it means to have a biblical worldview. So we're talking about worldview, and worldview is important because it, at its basic definition, it's a framework that people use to interpret the world, how they see the world, how they make sense of events. That's what someone's worldview is. And for every person on the earth, you can have a different worldview for that person um, compared to another person. A lot of worldview is passed down through culture. A lot of it's passed down through parenting. A lot of ethics and values have to do with worldview. But two different people can grow up in the same home and have different worldviews uh, because just from however they've learned things or whoever taught them uh, the values that they have. So when we talk about a biblical worldview, where are we getting our worldview from? We want it to be from the Bible. We want it to be from Scripture because that's solid. That doesn't change. So worldview also answers four different questions. If, if you're trying to figure out what somebody's worldview is, whether you're reading something or, or listening to somebody give a speech or even present something to you or read a book, whatever, you can figure out somebody's worldview based on how they answer these questions. The four questions are, how did everything get here? What's wrong with the world? How do we fix it? And what do we do next? So the first question is, you know, uh, how did everything get here? 
if you are looking at this from a biblical worldview, you just start at the beginning of the Bible, right? At the very beginning of the Bible, you get the answer to that question. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how everything got started. So if he created everything, think about what that means. He also gave it purpose. He gave it reason. He gave it order. And he's in charge. He's the big boss. That's important to establish in a worldview that somebody is in charge, that it's not me, it's not you, it's not whoever just claims to be, but it's actually the creator that organized all of this. Comparing that to some other worldviews, um, some worldviews say that everything just got here out of chaos. You know, there was some kind of explosion that had no rhyme or reason to it, and we can't explain it or understand it, but it just happened. Uh, some say that there was this accidental, you know, primordial soup that uh, things grew from and that people evolved from, and there wasn't really a purpose to any of it, but it just happened. But um, can you see how you can derive a purpose from actually being created versus, you know, maybe just everything's meaningless if there is no purpose to it at all? The second question of what's wrong with the world, why are there problems, you know, what happened, that can be answered in scripture as well through an event that we call the fall. And the fall is described in the third chapter of Genesis when it talks about um, man and woman breaking the commands of God, you know, falling for tricks. And, and they basically had a rule to not eat from a specific tree in a garden that would have given them knowledge of good and evil. And they did it anyway. And that sin, that choosing to disobey God, separated them from him. It alienated them from him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Uh, when they committed that sin, God had to give them consequences, but he also gave the trickster consequences. He gave the serpent consequences. And that's important to remember as well, because it wasn't just for the people um, first God gave Satan judgment through that. And he told him in verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And that is the very first time that the gospel plan is set out in scripture, the rescue plan, which we'll get to in the third question of how do we fix all of this? But some of the other problems that happened um, from that sin in the garden, from the fall, was that now the man and the woman were hiding themselves from God. They, they had shame and guilt, and they knew that something was wrong. But God also provided for them. He gave them clothing and covering. But an animal had to die to do that. He had to give them 
um, animal skin to protect them and cover them just from uh, physical elements and from their shame. But that was the first pointing of a sacrificial system that something innocent can pay for something that's guilty. But the sin was a big deal. It's not a light thing. There are some worldviews that say the fall of man wasn't that big a deal. You know, they just said sorry and, and, you know, there was forgiveness and then everything was better. But this was a really big deal. And scripture says that it was a big deal. Um, one of the parts of scripture that's important to remember too is that when we are in sin and we're being controlled by sin, we can't please God. So Romans chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what's wrong with the world. We are still experiencing the consequences of sin, of rebelling against God, choosing to be our own boss, choosing to be our own king. And that's a big deal, whether you realize it or not. Um, God is holy, and we can't be with him if we're walking in darkness. First uh, John chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light and he is as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And we can't save ourselves from our own sin. Uh, no matter how hard you try to make good choices or think right thoughts um, on our own, we can't we can't do that. We can't fix it because we're still stuck in the cycle. Um, Romans chapter three says, "None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. So if you're getting the picture, uh, the problem with the world, why is there sickness? Why is there death? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? It's because we've rebelled against God and committed sin. Our ancestors did it. And we can pretend like, hey, you know, why did they do that? You know, they're dummies. But uh, you would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. So we can't pin it on them, right? But what's important to know is that we're not stuck there. So, um, but in talking about worldviews, the biblical worldview answers that question, what's wrong with the world, with, well, sin's what's wrong with the world. Our own sin is what's wrong with the world. 
starting with yourself. There's other worldviews that um, will pin what's wrong with the world on other things. They'll pin it on people. Uh, they'll pin it on other people's behaviors. So maybe you'll say uh, government is what's wrong with the world. Or people with power is what's wrong with the world. Or the economic system is what's wrong with the world. But, you know, that, that also implies that there's someone else that's not causing the problem. Like one group is causing the problem and the other group is just a victim of that. But from the biblical worldview, we're all doing the problem. We're all part of the problem. And it starts with me. So there's no self-righteousness in there of pretending like you're not part of the problem. So the next step in talking about that third point of how do we fix it, the biblical worldview talks about redemption. So how did everything get here, creation, what went wrong, that's the fall, and how do we fix it is redemption. And the funny thing is it's it's kind of a, a bad question because we don't fix it on our own. Like Christ paid for that sacrifice. God on his own part set out this big rescue plan to rescue the guilty through the perfect sacrifice of his son. And throughout the Bible, you can see a lot of stories, um, even going back to the one in the garden about the animals that had to die for the clothing, um, where God set up this sacrifice system to help the people see that something innocent had to die for their guilt, but it never lasted. They had to keep doing this over and over again. They had to do it um, in, in a, a ceremony type fashion where it was serious and there were steps and they, they couldn't just, um, you know, put it in the back of their mind like something you know, like you tie your shoe, you can't really explain how you're tying your shoe. You just know how to do it. Uh, this was meant to be something that you really had to be thinking about while you were doing it. It's not something you could just do quickly and forget about it, like when you tie your shoe. And I mean, if I don't know, I've never had to slaughter an animal. I'm sure if I did, I'd never forget it. Um, I, I, I'm sure I could go find a farmer that's had to do something like that. And maybe they remember the first time they had to, and now they're kind of used to it, but we can kind of get used to, we can really get used to our sin and forget how traumatic it is and forget how serious it is and that it separates us from God. But like, we can't fix that on our own because we're not clean enough to get clean. Um, if you've ever tried to get something clean with a dirty towel or clean a plate with dirty water, like, you know, you can't do it because you don't have anything cleaner than what you already have. Um, Christ in his own perfectness is God in human form. And he paid that crime by living a perfect life, um, dying 
uh, on a cross being killed brutally, you know, murdered so that that crime that we committed could be paid, but it's not something that's just paid automatically, you know, like you don't have to do anything for it. And, and the way that I'm wording it might sound strange because there's, there's a lot of buzzwords in Christian culture for how this process works, how redemption works and how salvation works and what God's part is and what your part is in it. But if you're going at it from a biblical worldview, you see, um, you've probably heard the phrase before, uh, we're right with God by grace alone through faith alone. And so the grace is important because it doesn't matter what we try to do to be right with God. If he doesn't open up that avenue for restoration first, he had to open it up. Um, he had to get that process started and he had to do the sacrifice himself and offer that to us. If he didn't do any of that, it would not even be an option for us. We'd just be stuck in our um, loneliness. We'd be stuck with our consequences. And uh, we couldn't be reunited with him ever. But he opened that up um, through grace. And then the faith part is where we actually follow through. And sometimes I explain it like we have to take a plea deal. Um, so if you've ever seen something where somebody's in the court of law and the judge is reading to them, uh, you know, every, all their list of crimes, you know, you robbed the bank, you shot the guard, <laughs> you stole the money and we caught you on video camera. We have witnesses, we have fingerprints, you're guilty you know, how do you plead? And if you, if you surrender yourself to the evidence and to the, the mercy of the judge, you throw yourself at the mercy of the judge, um, sometimes you can get something called a plea deal where your sentence isn't as bad as if you lie and put up a fight and make it difficult and do all these things to make the trial worse. Um, God's plea deal is that, look, my son, I sent my son to pay for your crime, but I want you to live by faith and I want you to repent. And sometimes, you know, people uh, kind of bucket that a little bit. I think you don't really have to repent. But I mean, if you read the Bible, you look at uh, Mark, even Mark chapter one, uh, verse 15, it says, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 13 in verses three and five, Jesus is there saying, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Um, repentance is an important part. It means that, you know, at its basic level that you have uh, enough remorse for what you've done in your heart to stop doing the wrong things that you're doing and then ask God to give you a heart that thirst for righteousness. It's also admitting that you're guilty uh, of what you were doing uh, was sinful, that you were living in a sinful life, that you were choosing to defy God. 
and that you broke his law. And if you broke any of the law, the Bible says you, it's like you broke all of it. So it doesn't matter if you think you've never stolen before or you think you've never uh, robbed anybody. Um, the Bible even says if you hate your brother in your heart, um, that's like murder, murdering your brother. So we're all guilty, and you've got to realize you're guilty. And that's how we fix it. That's how it gets fixed. You repent of your sin. You take the plea deal where you stop trying to be your own boss. You let God be your boss. And you live by faith. And at my church, we have this definition of faith that um, one of the older men came up with in a class, and he's taught it to others. And I really like it because, it, in the essence, it has repentance in there. It has kind of the entire concept of what it means to live by faith. And the definition is choosing to live like the Bible is true, regardless of your circumstances, your feelings, or cultural trends. Because sometimes it's really easy to just decide you want to live however you want to live based on how you feel at the moment, or maybe the culture says that's how you need what you need to do, or, or, or whatever. It can be real easy to kind of pick and choose parts of the Bible that are comfortable for you, or create a God in your own image that you're comfortable with. And if you do that, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. Uh, you made up a false idol that cannot help you. Okay, so just to do a quick recap, we've talked about three of these four questions for how you look at a worldview. The first question was, how did everything get here? And that's creation. God created everything. Um, the second question is, what's wrong with the world? We talked about the fall and sin and how that entered the world and um, how we're part of that because we defy a holy God and that alienates us from him. Um, how do we fix it is the third question. And it's kind of a, a trick question because on our own, we couldn't fix it. So God had to extend grace to us, and then he requires us to live by faith, to be reunited with him. And then the last part is, what do we do now? So uh, once you have that framework of creation, fall, and redemption, uh, the last part is like what I like to call um, the last marching orders uh, from Jesus. So I played high school football for one year. The first year that my high school got football um, was my last year of school, my senior year. And I got to be the, the center on the football team. So basically the center um, has an important job and they, they bring everybody together in the huddle. Before a play, the play gets communicated to the team and then there's something important at the end of the play where they tell you on what signal you're actually going to run the play. So um, in our system, we could start a play on down, set, or the first hut, 
the second hut, the third hut. So if it was, you know, um, uh, run right on two. And then that means when I hear the second hut, I need to snap the ball and get everything started. Um, after that, we didn't talk about the play. Everybody got in their positions. We kind of observed what was going on. And we all had to remember what the play was and then execute it. There were times I forgot the play. <laughs> there were even times that I snapped the ball at the wrong time. But um, if I ever forgot the play and I, we ran the wrong play, you know, we'd hear about it at practice the next day or we'd hear about it in the huddle. Like, what's going on? Like, you ran the wrong play, which was hard to do. We only had three plays. Uh, we had a, a running back run, a fullback run, and we had one pass play that we ran. But uh, my ADD self was forgetting the play sometimes, you know. But Jesus gave us a play to run, and we're still supposed to run it. Um, some people call it the Great Commission. And in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we're supposed to go tell other people about the entire gospel. We're supposed to go help them be disciples and not just like our neighbors close to us. It says of all the nations. So you start with the people around you, but you don't keep it to yourself or your family, like even other. And it's not just about other countries either. Like maybe people that you're not used to spending time with or that you don't really know. Um, it's an, it's a thing that's not supposed to be kept to a specific group of people. And it's not just telling them and helping them be disciples. Um, it also says teaching them to follow all that I commanded of you. Or some translations say teaching them to obey everything I commanded of you. And then it says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So spiritually, um, God will be with us while we're doing that. That's the biblical worldview. Um, and how it answers those questions. There's other worldviews that answer those questions differently. And we talked about it a little bit. Like, where did everything come from? Maybe it was a, a giant explosion or just a purposeless primordial suit and, and, and the implications of that, that that has. Or I guess I should say the ramifications of that and how you live your life can be totally different based on if you were created or if you were just an accident. Um, the second question of what's wrong with the world. Um, there is a worldview that I learned about a lot this year called critical theory. And a lot of people have heard about it from like talking about critical race theory and some of the stuff that happened this last year in 2020 with uh, George Floyd and racism being in the news a lot. But it doesn't, it doesn't stop with critical race theory. And if all I do is focus on critical race theory, um, it'll pop up as something else. Like there's, there's been publications about um, parenting and education that have a lot of critical theory in it. So 
But anyway, in in this critical theory, they say that the problem with the world is that there's somebody that's in power. Somehow they have power and there's another group that doesn't have power. And when the group that has power is inflicting their power on others, they're, they're oppressing them. And they don't even realize that they're oppressing them sometimes. And it's just by living out their values or their culture, or sometimes it's intentional and they'll use phrases like systemic. So in critical race theory, the idea is that there's these people that are in a, 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 a primary group of a culture. So in our culture, it would be uh, white Caucasians or male Caucasians. And they have set up some kind of system to systemically oppress anyone that doesn't fit that group. So even though I'm a male, you know, they would call me an oppressor, but because I'm African-American, they would call me oppressed. And because I'm oppressed, they would say there's things that I don't have access to or that I'm not allowed to do because I fit into that oppressed group, whether it's true or not. So, um, I mean, in our and it's it's undeniable that in our country's history, we've had to deal with issues like slavery and and even uh, civil rights and issues that came out of that afterwards. Like, um, my grandparents weren't allowed to buy a home in a rich part of Dallas in the '60s and '70s, but um, even before that, my my grandmother's um, parents lived in St. Louis and they weren't allowed to buy a home on a, in a certain area, but they had a friend. Um, they, they said that the rich white people would sometimes buy homes and then turn around and sell the home to their African-American friends so that they could live in the neighborhood anyway. And they would do that for them kind of as a middle person. Um, we don't have to deal with that anymore. Um, the, the current secretary of housing and urban development is Dr. Ben Carson, uh, who's an African-American, grew up poor in, in the Detroit area. And he studied and read and his mom made sure he had gotten education. He became a doctor and worked his way through that and became a brain surgeon and, and was very successful. And now he's the head of the housing department for our country, making sure people have access to fair housing. And he's even sued Facebook for discrimination, housing discrimination, and how they do advertisements and their algorithm, not showing people homes based on uh, certain demographics, which is illegal now in our country. So if someone were to tell me, well, Bernie, you're being oppressed in the housing market, I'd say that's not true. I was able to buy a home uh, two years ago. I was able to um, get a loan. I have a credit score. I don't want one. <laughs> That's a different thing. We had, I got my credit score from student loans, and I guess now I have one from a mortgage, but uh, I'm not oppressed in that way. You know, they might say, well, um, I don't know, whatever, like they, they can come up with all kinds of reasons to say I'm oppressed. I should feel like I'm in this oppressor. I'm in this oppressed group. Or they could turn around and say, well, you're an oppressor because you're a male or you're a Christian. 
and you're pushing that on others and that that's what's wrong with the world. And so the, the way that they would fix that, um, it's starting out by finding everybody that they believe is an oppressor and helping them. I say helping, but it's not really helping. It's like trying to make them realize that and believe that they're part of this oppressor group and then put on them this guilt and shame that may be unearned. You know, like if you're actually um, being mean to somebody or treating someone poorly or better because of biological features about themselves, like that's actual racism. That's the historic definition of racism, that you're treating someone poorly than someone poorer than someone else or better than someone else because of biological features. But they've changed the definition to just mean it's somebody that has some sort of power in, in a system uh, over somebody else. So uh, a perfect example of that that's also tragic is this summer while there were uh, police riots, not police riots, but riots out in public against police officers and all this stuff about um, police officers uh, being unjust to African-Americans. And and it was like this whole group, like if you were a police officer, you were racist. But there was a problem because there were a lot of African-American police officers as well. Um, in my city, the, the police chief is an African-American woman. And so, I mean, clearly, it's really hard to convince somebody that they're racist against their own skin color. Uh, it's almost absurd to say, well, you're racist against your own skin color. Um, but while she's out there helping the protesters uh, march and kind of observing the protests and just helping everybody be safe from traffic and they're blocking the streets to make sure people can march and, and, and you know, demonstrate and do what they can, uh, she got a brick thrown at her head and some of her other officers were attacked as well. She didn't get hit with a brick, but there's a news report that said that a brick came really close to her. But so, like, why would you throw a brick at an African American policewoman because you're concerned about racism toward African Americans? It's not about her skin color or that she's a woman. That's not what they're upset about. Like the main thing they were upset about was that she was a police officer that, and that's a position that has power over the citizens. So what we saw a lot this last year was this idea that, well, if we get rid of the police or defund the police or re-educate the police or take funds away from police stations and police departments, that will fix um, racism. And you can read statistics that says that didn't work. There were a lot more murders in areas. Uh, there were a lot more people not getting the help that they needed. And it got, it got really wild. It got really bad. But it was under this idea that the way we fix um, police brutality is 
Um, you know, first we charge this entire group with a crime that not all of them committed, and then we get some kind of reform out of that. Now there needs to be, you know, in all of our, in all of us, we all need to look at ourselves and say, hey, what are we doing to help something or, or make something worse? But what I don't believe is putting a crime on an entire group of people that may or may not have um, participated in that crime. And, but this other worldview, this critical theory worldview, uh, seeks to do that. And that's just one example of how it's different than a biblical worldview. Because a biblical worldview tells you to look at yourself. Um, start with yourself. And then after uh, you're right, you, know, you go help someone else. That's in Matthew 18 as well. Uh, when Jesus said, you know, why do you look at your brother's eye and try to you know, fuss at him about the speck in his eye? First take the log out of your own eye and then go help your brother with the speck. So it's important to talk about worldview to look at where your own worldview comes from. And it's also important to kind of understand what other people's worldviews are as well. And, and so I really think it's important to read about other people's worldviews or ask them questions. Ask them these four questions. You know, where did everything come from? What's wrong with the world? You know, how do we fix it? And what do we do next? And you can learn about others and where they're coming from. But also, anytime you hear a new idea, even if it's addressed to the church, if someone tells you it's a biblical worldview idea, but it doesn't line up with what's in the Bible, it's not a biblical worldview idea. It, it might be an idea that someone got to somehow, but just like in math class, you have to be able to show your work. So um, that's all. I'm just want to encourage all of you to analyze your, your thoughts, your beliefs with scripture, and be able to show your work uh, that it actually came from scripture. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brand Beats Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review for us on whatever podcast service that you're using. You can also send us feedback at parlor.com slash Beats or even spacehay.com slash Beats.